0: For me, it's been a home run in two ways, on the racetrack and also building our brand here in Australia in our business.
1: i finished first or second every year since 2005, um, which was... Uh...
0: I knew it was first before, and I proved it right. It's, it's
1: motor racing, you know, you can't really just look at the last race of the
0: year. You have to look at uh, it starts at Adelaide and ends at Newcastle. But... From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside
2: Supercars, Craig Ravel and Tony Whitlock, another fascinating post-Darwin
3: extravaganza. Two winners from completely different parts of the motor racing spectrum, isn't it? And we have seen Scott McLaughlin extend his lead, but Erebus really show that they are a force to be reckoned with in 2018, and I think... I, as much as I enjoyed David's win, what I really enjoyed was the development and speed of Anton De Pasquale. It was great to see this guy who, you know, when you people were talking at the beginning of the season about rookies and who's going to be the best rookie, and everyone had uh, Richie Stanaway as the uh, lay-down mazare. What a great result it has been this year for Anton Di Pasquale, who uh, from memory is leading that rookie cup, if you like.
2: He, he is indeed leading the rookie cup. Um, and he uh, had a while he didn't have uh, great racing results, he certainly had wonderful uh, qualifying with a pair of thirds. Um, just uh, fantastic work. He missed out, um in the top 10 shootout where he was 10th, but that was his very first shootout. So it's not surprising that he would feel the pressure of it, but he's, he's in uh, leading the, uh, uh, the rookies. Um, And uh, the interesting thing for the weekend was that it was the usual culprits. Um, The top five in the championship were all the people who featured, maybe not all of them on the uh, podium, but certainly they featured over the two days and, Scotty McLaughlin uh, didn't win a race, but he did enough. And, of course, on Sunday there was some controversy that, uh, gee, why wasn't Scotty shown a black flag for the oil uh, he was burning and the smoke he was pouring out the back? Well, while some team managers might be thinking that, he didn't get a black flag, so, you know, take it as it is.
3: And importantly, Jamie Winkup said, Tony, that uh, there was smoke, but he said he didn't feel any oil on the track. It wasn't as if it was causing a problem. Now, the in-car camera was certainly showing oil coming onto the uh, onto the visor there, but uh, if the driver directly behind is saying it had no effect on the racetrack, yeah. then the right decision's been made. Indeed, indeed.
2: Um, and, look, it was uh, tremendous for a couple of reasons the weekend. I, I thought some of the, uh, the, the racing back in the pack, the battles for positions were some of the best... We've seen all year. Um, There was a tremendous uh, uh, job done by Dave Reynolds on the Sunday when uh, he came uh, from, I think it was fourth on the grid, and uh, went round the outside in turn one and got the lead and kept it. Uh, Just a tremendous job. And it was a make-up for his Saturday race when he, in fact, locked a break and lost what had been pole position, and he ended up being on the podium still with Shane Van Gisbergen getting past him. In uh, an undercut But it was really great racing
3: I felt And what was good was We saw so many different strategies Across that weekend Play out to Being um, At the end of the race All equitable In how they went about the race But they didn't uh, necessarily See the race made or break On where the pit stop was Some people obviously uh, took opportunities at different time in the race and certainly for dave reynolds on sunday they were running for a a safety car to try and have the best tires at the end however other guys were were pitting early and saying well catch me if you can and i thought that was one of the highlights where you had tired de- you had genuine tire degradation up against new tires which then promoted passing it also promoted blocking which makes racing interesting
2: indeed and, of course, you know, the cars had grip, and as you said, as a result of the grip, it did uh, have a degradation, uh, so over a stint. And, of course, that fascinating thing where, obviously, Ludo uh, went on a different strategy, to the one used by both Erebus and Triple Eight for their respective drivers in Van Gisbergen and uh, Reynolds. And lo and behold, there it was Shane rattling the cage of uh, uh, Scotty McLaughlin on the Saturday. Um, and uh, as a result, uh, it was a tremendous race. I mean, all three uh, uh, came from almost different uh, directions and all ended up being the three on the podium, and it was just a fantastic race. Really great to see. And a shout-out to to Nissan Motorsport as Um, well,
3: Tony. Shout-out to Nissan Motorsport. Uh, Winton wasn't the flash in the pan. Genuine speed from Rick Kelly, and uh, it's interesting to see how George and Rick are are gelling and they're maximising every outing they have with the Ultima. Indeed. And what
2: was terrific to actually watch and see that, uh, boy, that Nissan Patrol engine, it certainly doesn't lack anything in the way of uh, uh, speed down the chute. Uh, There was Dave Reynolds with the Walkinshaw's finest on board and he couldn't close him down. And uh, several times you'd see one of the other Fords or Chevys, as they're known, (laughs) um, and they couldn't just uh, close out a a Nissan engine. So that was tremendous to see because obviously... uh, Kelly Racing has done an enormous amount to develop that engine from being a four-wheel drive monster to being what's used in our touring car series.
3: And I think it's important too, Tony, when we think about how this uh, series is coming along, you have how quickly things can turn around. Right now, Tickford Racing is not at its lowest step, but it's in a very difficult spot. Now, we spoke to Tooley, who obviously has been uh, out of the game for a little while due to his injuries, and Chas Mostert, who, you know, both were buoyed by testing and they get back at the racetrack and things are still tough there. Now, if you think back 12 months, uh, certainly pre-Bathurst, where was Walkinshaw and just how much work have those boys at Walkinshaw done to turn around what did look like a floundering existence. So it can turn around very quickly and I think perhaps that's what the uh, Tickford Racing team has to hold on to at the moment.
2: Yes indeed and the the great thing is that uh, Walkinshaws have done and uh, done a great job in resurrecting from where they'd been in a a deep hole so that now have their two drivers back in the top 10 in the points um, and they sit, uh, um, I think they sit third in the team's points which is a tremendous result. I mean, okay, there's a fair gap uh, to the Red Bull, who only just sit behind uh, the DJR Penske organisation, but uh, as you say, they have done a tremendous job to resurrect their team. And uh, looking on the other side of the coin, you've got that situation, yes, where the uh, the four uh, Tickford racing cars are languishing, um, I think a best res- race and a, maybe a best qualifying result for the weekend was something like Chaz with the 12th or 13th place, which is uh,
3: certainly not where they want to be. No, not at all. Uh, and one thing, going back to an earlier point you made, Tony, one thing that Shane van Gisbergen was very happy to talk about was the fact that they didn't feel like they were having to skimp on tyres. He certainly felt that there was enough good quality tyres to really put on a show. And uh, there's been a a massive talk in the lead-up to Hidden Valley about the lack of testing. We spoke about it on the show last week. And what's critical is if you can't test, you need to have the tyres to be able to make going out on the track worthwhile. And and Shane was certainly indicating that this weekend it was the right balance of new tyres to length of time on the track and opportunities on the track.
2: Yeah, not enough tyres, though, to help Triple uh, Eight uh, reclaim their season from a qualifying point of view because they're still uh, way off the mark there um, with both Erebus and uh, uh, DJR Team Penske doing a fantastic job. Um, Fabian was not quite to the same sort of degree uh, in the uh, Scotty class, Scotty McLaughlin, but he's still uh, putting it in the ten. Um, and uh, 888 I'm sure will be uh, working hard with Laptop um, analysing uh, what they need to do to get back there but um, interesting uh, weekend Um, had a couple of uh, near disasters but uh, with their career Cup up there but um, James Moffat had a a win in the series, Um, David Wall and uh, Dale Wood had a coming together on the track but Overall, the uh, the racing was pretty good all weekend, and I'm pretty sure that most of the locals would have been very pleased to head out to Hidden Valley for it. Yes. One story that did break this week, Craig, was the uh, the paddle shift. So I don't know if you caught up with that. The uh, story broke by Auto Action last week uh, that uh, supercars have been working on this for some time. It, there may be contracts signed. I uh, hope before next week's show we'll talk to Steve McDonald, who's an ex-Gibson, ex-HRT. Uh, he's been with Albans for many years, and I'll talk to him about the situation with them because they've done a fantastic job in the time that uh, Albans became the replacement for the Hollinger gearbox, uh, which was the original gearbox, of course, used in our series. Tony, it's... is the it's... one that's been mooted...
3: It's interested where this has its had its genesis too, Tony, because uh, you might remember the Sandman set up for the V6. Yes. And they set it up with the paddle yep. shift. I think even before it had the V6 and it, it had the paddle shift. And I think really the genesis it for the paddle to, shift yep. has come from that Sandman concept car at Triple Eight. Um, and l- let's face it, uh, you buy a lot of cars now. Certainly in the uh, in the uh, supercar market and you get a paddle shift with it now your camaro and mustang might still have uh, uh, well it's six on the floor these days isn't it but uh, certainly if you jump yeah. into any audi toyota uh, any of those cars like a toyota corolla has a paddle shift a renault has a paddle shift uh, it does have yeah. a uh, another little aspect to it Of course, the in-car camera is not as exciting when you uh, don't get to see the driver grabbing for a gear.
2: Yeah, indeed. Um, Look, it's something that has been long uh, mooted for the category for at least 10 years, um, the idea of paddle shifts. Um, And there are a large number of people who are against it because it takes away one of those driver elements. It also takes away something that makes it unique in world motorsport because, drivers coming from overseas would have to get used to not only the stick shift, but also the stick shift being on the wrong side for them in a lot of cases. So, uh, you know, paddle shift universally gets rid of one or two of the the problems that the internationals had with our cars. Uh, You know, which way it goes, it's going to be fascinating to see. Um, If it has been silenced by supercars, um, then, uh, you know, if it's already a done deal... Disappointing that there wasn't a public sort of discussion about it, but so be it. We'll wait and see what's going to transpire in that direction.
3: Yeah, good job to Fogues for getting it out there. Yeah, indeed, indeed.
2: And the importance, again, of having a weekly or fortnightly uh, automotive, uh, rather, a motor racing
3: uh, newspaper.
1: Mm.
3: Yes, uh, it is uh, an interesting situation, the media at the moment, and uh, we're going to talk about that more in the in the weeks to come, the media landscape, uh, because Nathan Prendergast is going to join us on next week's show. He is currently the head of Supercars Media, and uh, we're going to get a great chance to speak to him about how the media package for Supercars is being put together. I had a discussion with someone a little while ago, Tony, who said, uh, you know, part of the whole move to 7 was just so Tony could set up his uh, television company because uh, at, in the Channel 10 days, it was very much a Channel 10 product.
2: Yeah, and the Tony you are talking about is Tony Cochran, of course, which subsequently became um, supercars or V8 supercars uh, television, and that's uh, what uh, Nathan uh, is now in charge of. Um, Look, I thought that the pictures coming from uh, Darwin were fantastic. Um, it, it, uh, the racing was shown up to be terrific with plenty of dicing through the pack and some of the best work I think uh, we've seen uh, this year or maybe even ever. But there are other aspects of the uh, coverage that you and I both know that could be improved, But and more on that next week. And on this week's Inside Supercars, Craig Ravel and Tony Whitlock, we are fortunate to be joined by David Black. David Black, well known in the V8 supercar paddock and in many other paddocks around the world of motorsport because David is the man behind Racetech Seats, a name that has become synonymous with successful motor racing because the drivers sit in his seats. David tells us about way in which he goes about building his brand in international motorsport and that's coming up after the break.
0: Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Yeah, I mean,
3: it, it means a lot. You know, through the years, a lot of reference this race as one of our majors. 600 miles around here is no easy task.
2: Uh, we are able to beat the two to the boys and, uh, and meet Anthony Begley in the final, which uh, we were able to do um, take the win off him. So, it was, uh, yeah, it was a great weekend
3: for the uh, Rapstad family.
0: Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.
2: And we welcome back to Inside Supercars, Craig Levelle, Tony Whitlock and David Black of Racetech. And we're just here to talk to David about Racetech. They're the foremost uh, racing car seat manufacturer in the world. They're based in Wellington, New Zealand. Extraordinary history. David, maybe you could just tell us about the background to how you now make racing seats for around the world.
4: Well, I guess I got into it because I, I drove rally cars for a long time and so learned about safety when I went over a 75 foot cliff and, and then sort of got a bit passionate about making sure that drivers were safe when they were driving at speed and having accidents. And then I guess it was a bit by luck I got onto I actually bought Racetick, we didn't start it, uh, moved it to Wellington. And, uh, and worked really hard to get into categories like supercars. So we're, we're now in 20 of the main game cars and most of the development series cars. Um, we've been lucky enough to uh, land a contract with Porsche recently, um, so we supplied the works 911 RSRs. Um, we're m- dominant in British touring cars now as well with our seat. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've got a, a different philosophy, and it's quite interesting the FIA have recently... adopted our philosophy of back mounting at the shoulder level for all GD3 cars after uh, 2019 so we think that finally we've been endorsed into, into the reason that our seats are used in a lot of categories around the world
3: now when you mention back mounting, you're talking about the seat being bolted to a pillar, uh, to a pillar
4: or a bar, bar Right yep. behind the seatbelt level Absolutely, so the, the theory is that all the mass in a, in a male is in the upper torso And, and you, you want to catch the torso or the upper body And transferring it straight to the chassis or the roll cage is obviously a lot safer And the other thing that the Porsche drivers all said when they first drove the car with our seat in It's the best feel they've ever had of a race car So I mean that's super important for performance as well, so not just safety
2: there have been a number of innovations in seats. I mean, certainly in the 20 years I've been around. One of them is the big ears on the side. But tell us about the development of that, which obviously protects the helmet from side movement.
4: Well, it, it's about it's about protecting the head and protecting the neck. The neck's a very vulnerable part of the body. It's got a lot of vital things that travel through it. Um, spinal cords, etc. Um, and so if you, you need to keep the body in the same relationship to each other, different parts of the body. And so not letting the head move too far is very important. You also need to have energy-absorbing foam in that head area so that it doesn't stop too quickly, so that you don't rattle a brain too much. Um, but, I mean, drivers are now, that with the modern safety equipment, are able to handle um, decelerations of 120G and walk away unhurt. So it's a dramatic difference over the years.
3: How do you measure how firm or how soft a, a material and a, a, a composite material and things like that can be to be able to know whether it's too fast or too slow,
4: it's it's all done in a lab. So all the all the foam we use has to meet an FIA standard, which is a headphone standard that's used in um, single seater cars, uh, Formula One, etc. So it's all about measuring the deceleration over a over a period of time, you know, split seconds, uh, in a lab, so that we know that when we put that material into our seat, it's going to perform the same way.
2: David, you've travelled to a number of rounds over many years, um, and there's a reason you do that. And it's to talk to the drivers and the teams.
4: Talk to drivers and just be aware of any new developments that might be coming along, getting ideas for new product development. Um, you know, if I sat in my office in Wellington, I wouldn't learn anything. So it's also about relationships and making sure that we keep the relationships with the teams and the drivers.
2: You've had factory contracts before
4: with um, BMW and Mercedes. Yes, and and not, yes yeah, Mercedes and Mercedes now Camaro as well. I guess we started out years ago in 2002 when we were invited by Daimler Chrysler to develop a seat for the Dodge Viper Comp Coupe, which was a factory-built race car, and, and they, they employed a, a safety expert, Dr John Melvin, who's no longer with us, but he was very instrumental in developing safety for NASCAR. And, and he, it was a very simple brief he gave me. You need to support the body in these areas and you need to keep the body in the same relationship. And so we developed a seat for the Viper that was then seen by the FIA as the new direction for safety in motorsport and so we did lots of presentations in Paris etc to try and get the message across and then unfortunately they let everybody else catch up with products that didn't follow our philosophies but were able to meet the standard and but that's why it's so nice now that they're coming back and saying that they're endorsing our philosophy. Tony had asked
3: you about the head impact but we're hearing a lot now about protecting the legs in uh, certainly sedan type cars how is integration in leg protection going to work into seats
4: and into seat development well we, we believe that the leg protection like the leg boards that these guys have got now in supercars I, I believe personally that they should be integrated with the seat so there's no there's no deflection at that point because that 's what's going to cause injuries but I've re- recently clarified it with the FIA and they've come back to me and said that no they don't want any connection between the seat and the leg boards which i I don 't agree with um, unfortunately I'm one only one one mouth in this and uh, they don't always listen to me but um, I think it should be and I think it should be carried through into other categories as well. A lot of the like uh, GT3 cars now are looking to do it, um, certainly Corvette, the project we're working with them, they, they're looking to incorporate it with the seat and right down to the to the um, pedal box.
2: Are you involved in any other areas apart from racing seats? Are there any other products you have?
4: Um, we do everything from boat seats to um, ocean racing yacht seats, where people want to be able to sleep in the seat when yeah. the boat's on a lean. Um, lot, lots of different stuff, but our main focus is racing, and, and and that's what we have expertise in, and that's why people come to us to work with us on on specific projects. That
3: diversification come Race Tech before you bought it, or is that something
4: that you've had a passion for and or an interest in? Oh, I mean, Race Tech was involved in jet sprint boats very early on in the piece, um, because of the safety side of things. Um, that's a pretty small market for us now Mm -hmm. so they've gone another way but but no it it just ideas you see or people approach us about doing something and and i've always had an attitude of let's give it a go if it's worthwhile looking at so yeah it's just a give it a go attitude
2: it's been wonderful talking to david black of Race Tech. sure he'll uh, enjoy coming to uh, another round of supercars where yet again drivers team managers race engineers will give him the feedback that he can use to readily develop a wonderful range of racing seats Thank you so much, David.
4: Pleasure. Thank you.
2: And thanks, David Black. Coming up after the next break will be Glenn Lindsay, a man well-known in many of the supercar paddocks, also known in Formula One and around the world, keeping drivers not only secure in their job, but making sure that they have the right tools at hand to do their job in being fit and
0: healthy. Join in the conversation, post your thoughts on our Facebook page and to ask a question, email insiders at sportradio.com.au
2: And welcome back to Inside Supercars. We're here with Glenn Lindsay, the physiotherapist for the Nissan racing team. Been around the sport quite some years. We won't sort of dig how far, but a number of teams he's worked up and down pit lane in supercars. And obviously now with the Nissan uh, giving the four drivers there the work over.
1: That's correct, yeah, um, time's gone fairly quickly, but there has been a few teams, and um, I said to someone the other day, the longer that you do this, the the more enjoyable it becomes because the more people you tend to know, and it it, it almost becomes a social event rather than just work, you know, which which makes it fantastic. You must like work, though, because uh, in between working for FPR at
3: four cars and uh, here at Nissan with four cars... you. Did a bit of uh, work with Charlie, and that was only one car. Was that not enough work for you?
1: Well, you know that that was that was a, a, a different season with, with Charlie. Charlie's a you know a fantastic fella, and that was um, you know fantastic fun. And that was almost um, you know doing it because Charlie's a, a mate, you know, and um, and and you know his driver Lee's a fantastic guy as well. So that was that, yeah, it was definitely enjoyable working with Charlie. And you know now it's a bigger deal at Nissan, but you know this is equally enjoyable. Um, you know, fantastic group of people, great communication, great morale in the team. It's, um, you know, good things happening. So and you've worked with uh, other sportsmen who actually sit down on the job um,
2: but, and they weren't quite as handy. I mean, they were more handicapped than the current bunch of uh, drivers you have. These were disabled sportsmen.
1: Yep, I, I, I worked with um, the British um, Paralympic swim team for a number of years um, back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And um, yeah, that was a, a, a fantastic experience. You um, know, did the, the Sydney Paralympic Games with them. At that stage, I was head physio with the with that particular team, and uh, that was a, a, probably a life changing experience for me. In that, you know, m- makes you realise, um, you know, how good we've we've all got it. And but even when things aren't. As good as that they may seem attitude makes a great difference and and for those those people you know the, the paralympians they say it 's it's a, it's a great victory just to get to the starting line and what, what these people have gone through in life um, the life lessons that they can teach us are, are phenomenal you know how so many, that changed
2: many my people involved in the how many...
1: oh it 's a very large um, Operation. It's. Well, I did it for the British team, so it's it's nationwide, and and basically, um, you know that that um, that movement has grown massively. I you know don't quote me, but I think the earliest Paralympic games was um, you know something like the the, the early nineteen eighties, but it's just gone on and on and on now, and there's a lot of money in um, disability sport, and um, you know. There's been some, some great athletes come out of that, and the you know the Australian team is a testimony to that. Um, yeah, that was a fantastic movement to be a part of, and um, you know a, a great highlight of my working life. That's for sure.
3: My understanding, when I've spoken to people that have worked in that uh, that arena, is that mentally these people are incredible uh, because to them the sport is so the adversity in sport is so minuscule it's very easy for them to overcome
1: those normal challenges that might set an able-bodied athlete back. Oh, look, you know, I, I, I've got some memories there that, that still blow my mind, you know, travelling with, with um, disability athletes. And, you know, people talk about, for example, the, the the difficulties of, you know, flying from the UK to Australia. I still remember being on a, on a British Airways flight and at the time um, one of the top athletes um, in, in Britain... Um, you know, I saw her making her way to the the, the toilets on a seven four seven, dragging herself down the aisle and into, you know, one of those toilet cubicles at the end of a twenty something hour flight and just, you know, that the the little things that they have to, to, to put themselves through that we just take for granted, just, you know, walking up and down the aisle of a seven four seven. Here's someone having to drag themselves, you know, up and down and into a you know a, a Probably pretty much filthy toilet cubicle, and just getting on with it without a complaint and just doing it. And that's one of those things that they, they have to do just to get themselves to the starting line.
2: Are there, are there any particular things? Um, I mean, obviously, you're looking after the bodies of these drivers, and you've got four drivers, uh, one of whom's new to you this year, is it right? One new driver this year. Yep. Um, are there things in particular that are beyond just the physical side of it? Do you help them? Mentally at all? Yeah,
1: look, a, a big part of, I think, what, what we do and what anyone in a, in a team does is it's, um, you know, that that's psychological aspect of, of, of performance. And part of my role is, um, as I see it, minimising the stresses that are, that are put on these drivers um, psychologically. And part of that, you know, everyone wants a piece of these sports stars at these big events and, you know, they've got to go and do their, their corporate appearances and all the rest of it they're pulled from pillar to post so it's, you know, I, I see my role as, as um, making their life as, as easy for themselves as possible in terms of keeping things stress free you know, making sure that they've got something to eat making sure they've got um, you know, hydration fluids available um, you know, making sure their, their race suits where it should be their helmet should be at the right time so they don't have to think about these sort of things but just, um, you know, just just life philosophies in general. Like Andre, was a, a, we had a great chat yesterday in that, um, the adversities that he's been through with his career and how he thought he was pretty much out of this sport and, and um, you know, the, the, the humility that that's given him. And, and you know, I saw a Facebook post of his this morning how he feels very privileged to be back in the sport and that's a sign of, of things that he's gone through. You know, he, he's, he realises that this is a great opportunity for himself. He hasn't been one of these people that's been a superstar their whole life and, you know, things get given to them and people, you know, um, you know milling around them, you know, patting them on the back, left, right and centre. He's had to work for it and he's had to make some tough decisions and have, have a good hard look at himself and, um, you know, now he realises the opportunities he's got and I think that headspace he's in is going to serve him really well
2: teams spend an awful lot of time, I mean, even rehearsing when they have problems, like a a diff broken or a tail shuffler or, you know, those sort of things. They rehearse those things. Do you get a chance to get involved in, say, the layout of the cockpit? Do you get a chance to have an input into that? Do you sit down with Scott Sinclair and say, there's not enough air on the driver, there's not enough cool air, there's not enough water or something? Do you ever have that opportunity?
1: Oh, look, yes and no. I, I certainly, um, in, in this environment, you know, you, you try and keep out of people fa- people's faces like, you, you know, your, your Scots, your team managers and your engineers, et cetera. They've got enough on their plate. You just try and put input in, give input where you can and, and at appropriate times. You certainly don't yeah. march in there in no, engineering no, no, briefings. No. And um, But, yeah, you, you basically try and contribute wherever you, you, you can. And that may not just be in, in um, what I do as a physio. It may be grabbing a broom and, you know, sweeping some um, stuff up in the garage because it's going to make the j- job easier for the mechanics or, or um, you know, grabbing a fire extinguisher and overseeing them when they're, you know, putting um, some sort of fuel into and the car or whatever. Whilst
3: you might have hands on more regularly the drivers, you're there for the entire team. Absolutely. And that is quite a number of people, not just four.
1: Yeah, well, you know, uh, what most... Um, casual observers of the sport may not realize is that um you know the the mechanics work a a damn sight harder than any of the drivers and then probably anyone i've ever seen in in a working environment these guys work incredibly long hours and it's a it's a tough gig they're on um you know hard concrete they they have to spend most of their life you know in, underneath the car, so it's not like they're standing at a nice, nicely, um, nicely heighted workbench or whatever. They're, you know, they're in all sorts of awkward positions. They're in, you know, working amongst the, the the grease and the grime and doing the hard yards, and they're doing it for, you know, sometimes 24 hours straight, you know, and beyond. It's yeah, they're they're incredibly. Um, durable young men and women. In the 2018 uh, Adelaide 500, it
2: looks like the weather gods are going to be kind, kind to not everybody, including the drivers. Um, I remember vividly Steve Owen and I was told by a doctor in the hospital on the day after that they'd never seen anybody, realising, of course, this is the driest state in the driest continent. The doctors in this state and the major hospital said they'd never seen somebody so close to cooking their kidneys. Now, you must be very conscious of the weather. This weekend looks like being very kind. Um, the preparation for you, does it change a lot when it's going to be ultra hot?
1: No. I, I think it, in terms of um, driving a, a V8 supercar, you, you've got to realise that that inside that cockpit can be um, unbearable for most normal human beings, even on a, an, on a relatively cool day. So, you know, in-car temperatures of, you know, 50 degrees Celsius plus... Uh, uh, are not uncommon you know even if the ambient temperature may not be up near thirty degrees, it can still be incredibly hot, and if their cool suit stops working, you need to be prepared to um, you know try and get their their body temp down as quickly as possible and make sure that their fluid levels are right so we have the you know the ice bars and the ice vests and the the electrolyte ice blocks and you know um, electrolyte drinks and all sorts of things, always ready to go. So, yeah, you've got to be... Like like um, engineers and mechanics, we, we've got to be prepared from the human side of p- things constantly.
2: Have you had any near... Not fatalities,
1: of course, but near injuries with drivers and overheating? Absolutely. I mean, we had a, um, a photographer collapse in, in, uh, in the paddock yesterday from um, blood pooling in his legs. He'd been wandering around all over the... Um, the, the, the racing precinct here taking photographs and then he stopped and stood still momentarily and it was quite hot and he um, he collapsed right in front of me yesterday and that's what happens with um, with race drivers when they when they've been working hard in the car in a seated position and then they get out of the car and stand up they get the blood pooling in the legs the um, they lose the blood to the brain and, and down they go it's it's a, that's what happens to me
2: it's, it's not un, it's
1: not uncommon well. You know, perhaps the, the odd drink or two might come into your equation, oh, Tony. See, but, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, hopefully not, not the drivers. But, yeah, look, um, it, it, it's a tough, tougher sport than, um, you know, many people would realise. It's, it's very hot and uh, a lot of muscular endurance involved. And, you know, that, that work um, inside a, a hot um, cabin you know, combined with all the fireproof clothing and helmet and so forth, you may well have a cool suit on, but, um, you know, it's, it's 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 not the the environment that humans are meant to be working in.
2: Being part of a 50-, 60-person team, you probably, and I think I've seen you actually, rejoice and enjoy the, the wins and the successes as much as anyone else in that team. Um, because you know, the driver and the crew working, doing the pit stops and those things, they're all part of the same performance criteria. They're all trying to reach their ultimate and go beyond, not too far beyond. Are there things that you have memories of, those are the things that you treasure in your time in the sport?
1: Wow. That, that, for me, you know, I've got memories that um, are just incredible memories. You know, I've been fortunate enough to be with um, teams that have, you know, one Bathurst and, and one Formula One races and, um, you know, I've, I've been in tears, absolute, you know, flowing tears running down the pit lane towards the podium, just feeling overjoyed for, for the team and for the driver and and I think just understanding what people have been through for that victory, it's not just that one or two hour race or, you know, day long race at Bathurst, it's, it's sometimes years of trying and years of of heartache and failure, and, you know, to overcome those things and, and to finally, you know, achieve that um, top step of the podium or, you know, even a second or a third or whatever, you know, it's, it's an incredible feeling. So, so, you know, I feel incredibly privileged to be a part of that, absolutely.
2: I often talk about to young drivers about when they go to Bathurst they need to learn about the whole spectrum of things. And as you say, it's years of lead-up. It's not just, You're not just training for this Bathurst, you're training for the one in two, three years' time. One of the things I say is they have to learn how to put tomato sauce on a hot dog. And it's not literally or
1: figuratively speaking, it's just a phrase because it sums up what you actually need to get right. Yes, and, and, you know, as Stephen Richards, you know, once said to me, you know, the, the Bathurst race doesn't even start until about lap 120, you know, so... You know, it's very easy to get excited when you you know you're leading into the first corner, or you you know you're still in the, the on the lead lap after you know a hundred laps or whatever. It's just you know you've just got to concentrate on doing the job that you're supposed to be doing, and getting your head down and not getting too carried away. Um, you know, Scott Scott Sinclair said to me recently. He gave me a quote about uh, an AFL coach. I'm not sure who it was who who said you know. The, the, the bad days are never as bad as they seem the good days are, are, are never as good as they seem you've got, to, you've got to try and remain as level-headed as possible and just concentrate on your job and if the good things happen, they happen and when they happen, you know, which is all too rare it's um, you know, an incredibly amazing feeling, you know? it's, it's awesome
3: How much has a physio's and a sports scientist's role
1: changed in sport from when you entered the profession to now? Well, you know, back in the, the my earlier days, particularly I came out of um, Formula One into V8 supercars, and you know, back in those days, you know, I, I suspect there was a couple of drivers there who'd um, you know put out the cigarette before they wander into the garage, or you know, down a couple of meat pies or whatever. These days, gee, you know, the, the stuff they're doing is um, out of this world. You know, DNA testing to to see which you know. Um, nutritional strategy is most effective for them and you know it's it's just does that actually work well you know anecdotally from from what some of the drivers are saying yes Uh, but but there's a lot of schools of thought you know in in those um those performance spheres and and you know what what works for some may not work for others and you know that's another thing you've got to sort of try and play into the psychology of your individual driver um you know, people from uh, past eras tell me Peter Brock was one, for example, that, you know, who never used to put too much stock in all of that sort of stuff or, or the setup of his car, he used to just get in it and drive it. And, you know, that um, that, that psychology of just, hey, I'm going to do this regardless of what I've eaten or how well I've slept or whatever, you know, I, I think there's a lot in that as well. So you can, you can play it both ways, you know. So you've got to try and find what works for you. And um, a lot of these guys, more experienced in motorsport, they've, they've learnt what works for them over many, many years of racing through all sorts of categories. So, you know, by the time they get to this, this level, you know, it's very often they're not going to listen too much to what someone like me tells them. You can, you can try and help them, you know, where you see glaring deficiencies which these days you, you don't see too many glaring deficiencies because it's a you know, very elite sport and these guys are operating at the highest level and they've also got incredible talent so they're, they're making that work for them um, yeah so you know you, you've basically you've got to let them do their thing and just fit in where you can and just try and help them as best you can. So you're not running like blood glucose monitoring or any of those sorts of things as
3: part of a program?
1: No we, we've been down that road um you know we've been you know more um scientifically hydration testing and all sorts of things but um my personal approach these days is is a lot uh, more simplified approach um and it's the old kiss principle um sometimes that that tends to work but once again you know it's it's each to their own and um you know if, if if certain drivers or teams have a predisposition towards you know, wanting to go to that that um, um, greater depth in terms of performance and, and um, you know, testing, then, then by all means, yeah, let's go down that route you know, because there, there's a million options available.
2: <laughs> One of the things, of course, this year is five rookies coming back plus Andre's returning to the series. Um, Jason Bright retired at the end of last year. I think he was 43, is that
1: correct, sound right? It's up there. Yeah, which, means... which still seems young to you and I, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree totally.
2: Um, but the great thing is, of course, we're seeing that the age come down, and and from when I started in the sport, when there were a lot of owner drivers there, they, they that doesn't happen anymore. No.
1: Yeah. Well, um, these these young guys coming through that you know that that a lot of young drivers want to get into this series because it is the you know the pinnacle of, of Australian motorsport um, nationally anyway, um, and you know there's a, there's a lot of young drivers to choose from so so to get into this sport you you know you've got to be the best of the best and um you've got to prove yourself to be to be not only quick but also um you know marketable and and and, and be a good team player and you know all all these other aspects of the sport that are not just about on track performance it's about it's what you can offer your sponsors and you know so many other facets and that's you know that's yeah. why a lot of these young drivers are handsome and great personalities and all, all these other yeah, things. that's
4: yeah.
2: yeah. um, you and I both uh, co- covered. Sorry, you and I both followed Formula One in the same sort of era. And one of the things, of course, that you need to remind young people nowadays is that Nicky Lauda bought his first seat in Formula One. So that you know, people are denigrating of drivers who actually you know go and find their salary and turn up at a V8 team. Well, that's how you get in the sport. They need the money. And if they haven't got the skill to go with the money, they won't stay there long. No. You know, and that's the great thing about our sport. It is a measured performance.
1: Absolutely. And, and you know... It's it's a it's a very expensive sport, and that's the, the bottom line. You know these bits and pieces on on these cars cost money, and um, you know that money's got to come from somewhere. And you know economically, it's a very challenging environment. So it's not just you know um, sportingly challenging for from a physical performance for these drivers. That you know they've got to fit into the, the the economical scheme of things as well. And we're you
2: standing know? talking to a man who actually looks like a human billboard. He's got more logos on him than most people have cut lunches in a week. But um, that's the, what the sport is. You're out there, a life support system for a, a yeah, uniform. Um, Glenn Lindsay. Glenn Lindsay. Well, the
1: big difference there, Tony, is that you, you won't see too many photographs or uh, you know, video footage of me as opposed to these young handsome drivers. <laughs> you know, I, I've probably got more space on me for advertising, but, you know, <laughs>
2: Oh, we know you're most of Captain Invisible. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's been wonderful having you on Inside Supercars, learning a little bit more of what goes on Inside Supercars and the teams that run in it.
1: Thank you very much, Glenn. Thank you. Thank you, Tony.
2: Thanks to Glenn Lindsay. And after the break, we'll have our final thoughts on this week's Inside Supercars.
0: Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. And, you know, every every year I see Jackie Stewart Grand Prix and I just remind myself... Of, of his part in, in starting the, the path to safer cars, dissecting the sport with interviews, news, and opinion.
4: Jack Rabham certainly left his mark not only on Australian motorsport but motorsport all around the world.
0: Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Join in the conversation, post your thoughts on our Sport Radio Facebook page.
2: Welcome back to Inside Supercars, Craig Gravel and Tony Whitlock. We should have a chat, uh, Craig, uh, about pit stops. Um, one of your favourite races in the weekend uh, was Le Mans. Um, it was a fairly inevitable win, I believe, for Toyota. They've spent a long time and a lot of money to get there. But there's a big change this year in pit stops. And pit stops are a fascinating thing because World Motorsports had to look to pit stops to actually sometimes arrive at a conclusion as to a race because mm. the cars don't break down It's only crashes that usually end the weekend for a a driver or a crew, Um, but pit stops is a very important part of the whole equation now.
3: Yeah, and they've changed quite a bit uh, even over my time in motorsport. Uh, In the early 90s, I was working in America and uh, there was no speed limit on pit lane and my job was to stand in the middle of pit lane with a board in my hand and uh, hope to Jesus, that uh, the car pulled up in front of me without hitting me and uh, also that the other cars in and around me didn't mow me down whilst I was blocking their entry to pit lane. And I can tell you at Phoenix one time, I actually uh, – by our driver was behind the driver in the bay in front and I hung my board out there and just stayed on the corner of my pit bay, which impeded the uh, guy trying to get into his. And his crew came over and told me that the next time that happens – he would be uh, not stopping for me. And uh, I took that quite seriously because that is what used to happen back then. But they were coming down pit lane at full speed and they were taking off and leaving pit lane at full speed. That uh, makes for a, a very interesting situation when you're standing out there with a board in your hand. But... What fascinated me with Le Mans, which of course, congratulations to Matty Campbell. He took out the uh, GTM victory at Le Mans, and uh, a great result there. And you could uh, conceivably say an Australian's this year have won Le Mans, Monaco, and also the Indy Five Hundred, the first yeah. time in uh, our history. Of course, uh, it might not have been an outright win at Le Mans, but if you get through the twenty-four hours and uh, are a class winner, you deserve the title of Le Mans winner every bit as much as uh, anyone else who's ever done it before. But this year they changed the pit stop regulations. And uh, in Australia, the pit stop regulations are you come in at a speed, you stop, you can fuel and change the tyres simultaneously and the drivers if need be, and uh, you do it as quickly as possible and get back out again. Now, in prototype racing or Le Mans previously to this year, it was always a case that you could bring the car in, you would either fuel the car or you would change the tyres, but you couldn't do both simultaneously. And what we saw with the change this year is that the teams were getting more and more adventurous because they could do tyres and fuel at the same time, which then meant that they were actually changing aerodynamic components on the car to find a tenth of a second, which they would never conceive of doing previously because the time they'd lose in the pits to make that change would be more than the 10th of a second a lap they might pick up. Remembering that if it's 10th of a second a lap and you do eight laps before your next pit stop or eight to 11 laps before your next pit stop, you haven't gained a lot of time. But this year with that change in regulations, they were changing components, very small components to get aerodynamic advantages. That's a very big shift for that style of racing. And, it's interesting to see, because I've been a proponent of saying we should go to the previous Le Mans style, where you can change the tyres or you can put fuel in the car, but you can't do both simultaneously. And and uh, obviously, with the Le Mans series going away from that now, the um, there would be absolutely no cry to follow their lead.
2: Indeed not. Um, pit stops are a fascinating thing. I mean, I happen to think that the pit stops I've enjoyed over the years, the ones the most uh, enjoyed were, were the indie cars of the uh, early to mid-90s when you'd have uh, one guy on each wheel uh, with a uh, a new wheel in his left hand and a gun on his right hand, one guy on the spike, one guy car control and one guy on the fuel, and, and they were just fantastic to watch. Unlike Formula One, which, you know, the, the under-two-second sort of pit stop is an extraordinary thing you know 25 plus people doing that pit stop there's a wonderful uh, video that's so uh, worthwhile people to have a look at red bull produced it david does a commentary it's a 45 minutes called the history of pit stops really interesting to, to look at and quite extraordinary because it was mark webber was driving uh, and he had to hit the right mark of course he did a 1.93-second stop. and This is sort of five or six years ago. And then I think Williams brought it down to 1.87 seconds. It's an extraordinary thing to, to change four wheels and tyres and, and get somebody going again. They took fuel out of the cars because it was becoming too dangerous and all sorts of things like that. But um, pit stops in our business uh, have become mandatory in every race. Um, and whether they're two wo- tyres two or four that are changed, every race has got fuel going in at some stage, and I, I do think that they add something to it and make it a real team event, and I think it's well worthwhile. The one thing I wish that, that supercars would do is make a portable position tower. You and I both know at Bathurst how important that position tower is. Everybody in pit lane, everyone around the circuit looks at that to see who's in leading. Because of the way in which we have pit stops every race, we can't know that at every track. Mm.
3: I, I know this has been a, a bugbear of yours for some time. We should get the listeners to donate to Tony's pit tower fund and uh, get them to donate <laughs> to put that together. And Tony, you funded. can <laughs> yeah get it crowd funded and you can take it to every race and put it up and uh, and plug it in.
2: It's so simple to do, and, and having, you would know as well that when you go to Speedway across America, you know, 2,000-odd mm. Speedway tracks across America, every single one of them, they might not be a, pa- a tower, but it'll be somewhere there'll be a position uh, yep. LED lights that show you which car is leading and who's first, second, third, and so on. Tony, and that I, I, when so I was good racing, series to have
3: that. Uh, it wasn't LED lights, mate. It was light bulbs. That were showing the position of the cars. <laughs> yeah,
2: indeed, indeed. But t- t- fortunately, technology has come to our rescue, and you can see it far more clearly now with LEDs. Yes, indeed. It's been but- a fascinating the uh, Le Mans, um, the way in which it, it fought out. I, I understand that uh, the LMP2 car has just been disqualified. In fact,
3: oh, I haven't come across that one yet. I've uh, after twenty-four hours, you need to take a breath.
2: <laughs> yes. From this week's Inside Supercars, it's Craig Gravel and Tony Whitlock. And good night from me. And good night from him.
0: Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars.